Today I'm back with Carla Ramesh on Poetry P Readings. If you remember last week, we had a long chat and a really interesting, in-depth chat about so many things. And I don't know about you, but my notebook was pretty full by the time we'd finished. <laughs> and I'm so happy Carla came back and agreed to do some readings for us this week. We'll probably go deep again, we shall see, but I'm truly honored again to be joined by Carla. Carla, thank you so much for coming back and doing this for us. What can I say, Patricia? It's, it's, it's an honor to be with you. And I've been admiring your sessions, the way you conduct your poetry pee. And I, it's amazing how what you're doing. So today, I'm going to paraphrase you um, with something you said in a series of articles for the Haiku Foundation. Uh, you said basically that haiku or writing haiku and becoming a haiku poet is sheer hard work. And today we're going to find out how that hard work pays off. So, Carla, we're going to go straight into our reading. Spring breeze, the sari slides. Spring breeze, the sari slides down her shoulder. That's great. I mean, it's, it's a really simple on the surface of it, a really simple um, idea. When I started thinking about it, it, it was so well crafted. Each word finds its own place in, in the poem. The sounds of it, the Ds and the Ss, to add to the rhythm and the pace. And then it works from the sort of the, the huge idea of the spring breeze coming down to the micro, the sari sliding down her shoulder, and it gets sort of comes closer and closer and it's just it's just a beautiful piece and so complex each of us probably has our own story when we read a, a, a poem like this Carla what's what did you intend when you wrote this sorry that way my mother wears it if you show me I would be I'm not visible here mm -hmm. the sari generally is pinned nowadays yeah. Because we don't know how to manage saris. It is, remember, it is just six yards of plain cotton sari, cotton cloth. Yeah. And we wrap it around and wrap it around and we pleat it and we push it. We put it on top. So we pleat it and we pin it so it doesn't fall off. Those days, my mother's time, they don't know what it is to pin a sari. So during breeze, it will slide down and they don't put it back again. It goes on. We keep on playing with this. It's called the pallu. We'll keep on playing with the pallu. We'll keep on throwing it on top and walking. What you have said is technical. What I've said is that yes, it happens very naturally when you're walking because of the spring breeze, the sari will slide down my shoulder. It is cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And okay. then I came to know that the Japanese never talk about cause and effect. It is a Western concept of cause and effect. Have you ever heard any Japanese talk about cause and effect? Even Susumu Takiguchi, he doesn't talk about cause and effect. He says a bad poem. When the cause and effect is too close, it's a bad poem. But even a cause and effect poem can be a good poem. Like this one, cause yeah. and effect, the spring breeze blew and the sari slipped down. You have brought two poems beautifully together. Congratulations, you've done it so well. 
How little I know of bird calls, distant thunder. How little I know of bird calls, distant thunder. Gita chanting, birds become the ellipsis. Gita chanting, birds become the ellipsis. I can really feel that um, what we discussed last time about the empty lung versus the full lung, that, that in, in, particularly in that second poem. But mm. not everybody will be familiar with Gita chanting. Could you give us a quick explanation of what that is, please, Carlos? Uh, yes, I will. Uh, I would like to um, talk about the first uh, poem also shortly. Can I do okay. that? Yes, please. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, how little I know of bird calls. We have a, a bird man, he's called. His name is Kiran Purandare. In all my festivals, I have him. He does the whistling of bird calls. Even in my um, symbiosis where I teach uh, undergrads, I, I have one uh, lecture from him. And we all are imitating bird calls through our whistles and our guttural songs. Mm -hmm. Okay? And he said a very interesting thing. He said, there's a difference between bird calls and bird songs. Oh. Not many people know that. I didn't know that till he told me. And I said, yes, it's so true. Bird song is a mating song. We all know that. Why don't we have more haiku on bird calls? It's always bird song, mostly bird song, because we're talking about mating. Mm, yeah. Okay. Bird calls are, are their language, mm. their signals, their alarms, their their. Uh, the birds are telling each other something uh, dreadful is happening, something joyful is going to happen. That is their conversations. How little I know of bird calls, distant thunder. In my Pune house, I share the Pune University Hill and far away, which is almost 40 kilometers away, I can see the sky. And my maid, I have a very good maid who is a Maharashtrian. She tells me when it gets dark over there, the sky during monsoons, she says, you know that it's going to rain here for us 40 minutes or 50 minutes later. That day, the birds, all small birds, I didn't see big birds that day, all little birds, the sparrows and the, and the, the, the parakeets and all going up and down, up and down, they were wild. Mm -hmm. That was the first uh, rains after our three months of severe summer. Yeah. Can you imagine the joy? Yeah. They sensed it 40 minutes away. They sensed it that you're going to have rains here. The second one, Gita chanting, is a memory coup. When I was 17, I, I, the whole family went to Bhagavad Gita classes with this, which is Hindu philosophy, the Gita. It's called the Gita or the Bhagavad Gita. We went and Swami Guru Chinmayananda was the lecturer. He was on the dice cross-legged with a, with a small table to keep his notes and the mic there. And he had a fascinating way of saying, think, think. He will move from left to right. He was a big man. Mm -hmm. Okay, he'll move from left to right. And he'll say, think, think. After every stanza. And after his explanation. In fact, I was just 17, 16. That was my first time I was listening to a Bhagavad Gita class. Afterwards, I've gone to many. And it was a huge open grounds around, 
around 15 to 20,000 people were sitting there on the ground. And he has a group of six singers who recite the Gita one chapter by one chapter. And he does around six chapters for that hour. And we meet again the next day and goes on for one month. Wow. And that was October. That's the best time. Because November, December, we get our rains in Chennai. October, November is when the birds are flying back or flying in rather for the winter, the migrating birds. Yeah. And then I think about it. I think about that those days. And I said, yes, they look like ellipses. I never thought of that before writing haiku. There were three dots. There were four dots. There were some dots flying far, farther and farther away. They were moving away. They yeah. did look like ellipses. Gita chanting, birds become the ellipses. That is where I brought Vedanta, the non-dualism, the oneness into it. They are part of the Gita chanting. And they are migratory birds. They are a Kigo word. They, they do fit into a haiku. Gita chanting is a very is a cultural image shall we say and so not not everybody is going to get it you perhaps wouldn't expect the likes of me to immediately get 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 it yes whether you get it or not i think the poem works in this instance but the question that it left me thinking is how do you feel about putting things in a poem that are culturally specific that people won't necessarily understand should we be making things easy for our, our readers? Who do we write for? Do we write for ourselves? Do we write for them? What I teach when I take a workshop is haiku is an experiential poem. Mm -hmm. I've not written even one poem about snow because I'm not experienced snow. You don't make up. It's not fiction. Yeah. When it's an experiential poem, how can I not bring something which is innate in me, which is lying deep within me with conviction. Yeah. You know, there is something, but I tell them not to have two Sanskrit words or two Indian words. Okay. Gita chanting. Gita, you just look it up in the, the, the Google, you know Gita is a Bhagavad Gita. You know Gita is a, is a text with, which uh, all Hindus follow. Mm -hmm. Like the Bible and the Quran. For people who know about various languages, you can say people don't know Quran. No, they do. Gita is as popular as the Quran. But I've not left it there. I've said Gita chanting. Mm. We have Quran chanting. We know that. Every five o'clock it goes on. In the morning it goes on. Okay. We have um, Christianity people do in the Bible during mass, uh, during Sundays, they do chant it. Yeah. Every religion does it. So Gita chanting, birds become the ellipses. When you talk about the bamboo become the bamboo, the birds are becoming the ellipses. The way the poet sees it, rather. Yeah. So it is all our vision, the way we want to project. But Americans have talked about the Lent They've talked about so many other festivals, which I don't know. I have to Google. True. Yeah. The Japanese have spoken about so many other things that um, uh, they've spoken about so many things. You have to Google. 
So why not Indians who are just entering the field now? Of course, I've been doing it for the last 15, 17 years. I've been using Indian birds. Mm -hmm. Okay. But yes, we allow that amount of give and take so that we become one for the love of Haikai and not because I don't understand. Devi Temple. Along with the ants, I enter barefoot. Devi Temple. Along with the ants, I enter barefoot. Rainforest. The lives. Rainforest. The lives I step on. When we were young, each temple will have a, a slab, a doorstep, yes. where it'll be made out of silver and we have to not step it. Because my mother would say that is the first thing they lay before the whole temple is built. In Indian temples, we remove our shoes outside. Our footwear is kept. Nobody will take, even a child will not be allowed to wear their shoes inside. Okay, so when Susumu Takikuchi had come here for our festival in 2008, I had taken him to a temple in Pune. He said, I said, Susumu, sorry, but you have to take out your shoes and socks. He said, no, my feet will get spoiled and dirty. I'll wear my socks and he wore his socks and came. I said, there'll be wet patches over there because they do, they pour water and all that. He said, that doesn't matter. I have other pairs of uh, socks, but I'll wear my socks. So he wore his socks and came. So the concept is not there of removing footwear throughout the world. We don't enter a temple. At home, we don't enter the puja room, the prayer room with slippers. It's followed throughout. You don't have to teach it, it's part. At home, we don't enter our footwear with our footwear into the bedroom, into the rooms. No, it is put outside the door. When visitors come, it'll all be outside the door. We don't have to tell them. And then yeah. they enter barefoot inside the house. It is just one way of keeping the whole thing clean because people are spitting outside. You're stamping all that. And then you're coming inside and cows, shit. You know, we have all that in India. So oh, you yeah. get your slippers out and you enter. So Devi Temple, along with the ants, I enter barefoot. I've removed my shoe and I'm going to cross that huge slab I'm young, and when I cross, it's a huge cross. I don't do it effortlessly like the adults. Mm -hmm. I take a lot of effort to do it. I'm looking down, and I see the ants also walking barefoot, crossing. It, it really is a beautiful, beautiful haiku. Isn't oh, it? thank you. Rainforest, the lives I step on. We went to the rainforest some six years back, mm -hmm. and that was when it was written. But the story is far, far, far back, around 25, 30 years back, when we were in Pune, when we were traveling by car with my two children, mm -hmm. I saw four monks, women monks, walking barefoot on the road, fast, fast footsteps, because the heat otherwise will get onto them. Oh, yes, of course, yeah. Yes. And I wondered why the Hindu monks wear footwear, the Buddhist monks wear footwear, only the Jain monks, Buddha and Jain were contemporaries. Mm -hmm. 
okay he thought jane was very i mean austerity was too much mm-hmm. they uh, they put a, a cloth around them after six so that even by accident they don't breathe in a flying insect uh-huh okay yeah that time i didn't understand 30 years back i didn't understand why they were working walking barefoot but later the last 5 6 years i understood now i tell people they say ha huh. but nobody told me when i was searching for the answer mm-hmm. okay i've come to the conclusion that they walk barefoot even now they walk barefoot only because when you're wearing boots tap 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 you go that many insects ants are killed yeah with every step of yours yeah when you're wearing when you're not wearing any footwear only the points of your foot of your sole touches the floor if you're arched then all the more your feet is beautifully arched and nothing at all the the ants and the insects can live happily as you walk yeah isn't that beautiful it is from that concept i went to the rainforest i was with my granddaughter and she was saying amma look at this amma look at this insect amma look at this creepy and then i realized i put both together and we were wearing shoes because it was rainforest it was yeah. slushy we were with shoes so i started to become careful where i placed my feet oh. okay rainforest the lives i indent the word the lives so i bring it to focus to the reader rainforest okay. the lives yes of course the lives there are more to lives around in rainforest yeah i step on i'm glad you mentioned the way that you set it out because again i think it's one of those things particularly when you're new to haiku that you don't always think about i thought you'd done this specially for me but we'll have a look <laughs> tinkling bells cows bring home the twilight hour tinkling bells the cows bring home the twilight hour cows have played a, a big part in my life my grandparents have a farm so um well, they're not alive anymore they had a farm so i my summer holidays would be part of it would be spent bringing the cows in and out for milking so that was that was one thing and now of course i live in switzerland and all the tourists love the tinkling bells of the cows but <laughs> I have to tell you that when they live in the field next door um and they keep you awake at night it's not um it's not quite as good but I think perhaps you have a different different relationship with the cow um to that of the wretched cow in the field keeping me awake at night <laughs> see the cows for us is a sacred yes. animal we worship the cow so every house would have a cow mm-hmm. and or uh, the neighborhood will have a uh, will have cows and they'll have bells all cows have bells throughout the world the cows bring home the twilight hour they go in the morning and then by evening we're expecting the cows to come back the grandmothers the mm-hmm. aunts the great aunts everyone will be saying the cows will be coming back now it's called godali the term godali means the the time when cows come back okay it's such a precious moment mm-hmm. they don't disturb us during night because they are tied and they are kept and they are also sleeping mm-hmm. all the cows are taken care of so the cows bring home what is the twilight hour 
the twilight hour is a special hour in our Indian thought. We have two twilight hours. The morning twilight is when the night becomes day. Mm -hmm. And the evening is when the day becomes night. It's one hour in the morning, one hour in the evening. Mm -hmm. When it is non-dual, it is one time. Yeah. And so we go back to Advaita, we go back to non-dualism, we go back to the oneness. And that is a time most Hindus, most Indians will meditate. Because the atmosphere is congenial for them to unite with that oneness. So they bring home the twilight hour. It gets dark. And the coward won't be keeping the cows there. He'll bring them before light. When the bells start coming, hey, it's time to do meditation. Hey, yeah. it's time to light the, the, the lamp for the God. Hey, it's time to go back and pray for some time. The twilight hour has come. Yeah. That's what it means. Twinkling bells. Cows bring home the twilight hour. Even far away you hear, you say, oh, it's 5.30. Yeah. Six o'clock, I have to do my meditation. Dhyan which Buddha took and it became Chan in China, which became Zen in Japan. Yeah. The meditation, the oneness. Yes. Zen is all about oneness. And yes. India is full of that, full of that. This poem to me is different to the way I feel about cows, obviously. When I read it to myself, especially when I hear you read it, I can feel peace. If we're in a good place anyway, the twilight hour can bring that sense of peacefulness, can't it? Now, Carla. Plucked jasmine. Plucked jasmine. A funeral on my hands. Plucked jasmine. A funeral on my hands. Now, this one fascinates me because in my deep and distant past, I was a florist. I worked in a very multicultural area of London and it's really fascinating how each culture has a thing about flowers and you know certain flowers mean certain things in different cultures I don't know what the plucked jasmine means what what was the significance of that to you in this one of course our lotus is a national flower for India but jasmine is something especially in South India it grows in abundance mm -hmm. it's plucked mm -hmm. And we keep it as a string of jasmine in our hair throughout South India. I don't know about the North so much. Now we all pluck flowers, whether to keep it on the hair or whether to keep it in a vase, whether to take it to the church, whether to take it to a temple or whether to take it to a prayer room, we pluck flowers. But what my friends told me, all, mostly of them are outside India. Mm -hmm. They said a funeral has happened and you're having a funeral on your hands. So the plucked jasmine is going to help you to arrange. I didn't mean that at all. No. The minute I pluck a flower, the minute I take the flower away from its natural habitat, the minute I pluck the flower from the plant, whether I keep it in my hair or whether I keep it in a room, whether I take it to the church or whether I take it to the temple or whether it's used for a marriage ceremony, I am preparing its funeral yes. because in the end of the day, it's going to die on me. Plucked jasmine, 
a funeral on my hands. That is what I do. The flower is so beautiful in the plant. Why do we have to pluck it? Yeah. And then prepare its funeral. That's what the poem is about. And then again, you've indented on my hands. Was that for the same reason as before? You wanted to highlight that line? Yes. Yes. Indent. I use a lot of indents in my poem, mainly to focus or mainly to bring or highlight that word to the reader. We're going to go to some Senryu next. And I have a question from John Hawkehead. He was most interested <laughs> when he knew that you were coming on. He says, in English language forms, there seem to be a very hazy overlap where the human condition is under consideration, but against a canvas of nature. If we consider humanity to be part of nature, aren't all human actions, thoughts and dreams part of nature? If there's no human influences in the poem, then it's clear it's a haiku. But we are poets, so by writing an observation and sharing it, aren't we blurring the haiku senryu border again? So, Carla, I've just been trying to avoid thinking about the differentiation between haiku and senryu. Yes, it's it's a difficult one. Have you got any pearls of wisdom for us on that? Okay, so how do we differentiate? Anita Wurgel, she said a beautiful thing. Yes. So she said, Anita said, in the whole picture of nature, a little bit of human nature is there, that is haiku. When there's no nature at all, it's just about the idiosyncrasies and the fallacies and the faults and the, and the human traits. It is central. It's a clear distinction. Alan uh, Pizzarelli had clearly put in his uh, Simply Haiku, I'm talking about so many years back, I still remember, he had said that once in a while you can have a Kigo word in a senju, but generally there is no Kigo word. Most often, Anita says, why are people having a kire? Why are people having a cut? It can be a flowing sentence. What is you're going to bring forth in a senju is the idiosyncrasies of the human being. You don't have to have a cut and a two parallel juxtaposition. All that you're thinking of haiku, you don't have to bring it into senryu. People have not differentiated. People have not gone into understanding that haiku can have a touch of human being. Mm -hmm. And a senryu is completely about a human being. But now okay. people are sitting on the fence. Yeah. They're writing, a, they're sitting on the fence not knowing whether it's a haiku or a senryu, no magazine is differentiating it. So why bother to say it's a haiku or a senryu? Sitting on the fence, they have a seasonal word and then talk about their personal relation to life. They talk about the husband or they talk about their mother uh, doing something or they talk about themselves not understanding what, I mean, I, I, I don't have a, a, a examples to um, say it here. Uh, I don't remember, but generally it is a seasonal word is put over there with a clear cut and then two lines. And then you wonder, is it a haiku or is it a senryu? It is not both. We have more from you now. Bedtime. She asks if her rag doll can stay up late. Bedtime. She asks if a rag doll can stay up late. 
Now, children are so clever. They are so, when you say it's bedtime, go to sleep, and all the people are sitting in the drawing room talking. And so they want some excuse to come and say, do you okay. think my rag, I want to sleep, I'll sleep. Of course, I'll sleep. But do you think my rag doll can keep awake? You know, that way. And so I try to tap on that um, yeah. sense of growing up into the adult world, how children grow into the adult world to get excuses to do what they want to do. Giving permission, the, the I in you, to I me. If you had not put this, reading it would have confused every writer because every listener and reader because they wouldn't know what it is I'm talking about. Mm. Giving permission, the I in you, to I me. I think you're going to give me a superb lesson here, Carla, because I <laughs> love this one, but I don't know why. Can you tell me why do I love it? What have you uh, done? See, again, <laughs> giving permission, you know, this is completely about the male gaze. Mm -hmm. This again about when I was a teenager, when I used to go in the bus, all the men would be in the front and the women would be given seats or they'd be made to stand. If the buses were always crowded mm -hmm. and when we go up the bridge, the men will just push. They'll just land on us. Yeah. Okay, and we have nothing else to do but just fall, keep, keep on taking their load. What I'm trying to say is that I, there's something called this, the I in me, which makes me talk. There's something called the I in you, which says I have to do this poetry, uh, for me. I have to do this for the haiku world. There's something in you that tells you what to do. Mm -hmm. Giving permission, the I, in you to I me, you have no right to yep. gaze at me that way. We know what male gaze is. You have no right to gaze at me. When my daughter was small and she used to wear shots, you know, when she, when she met you when she was 11, 11 or 12, when she had to go to the shop to buy, I'll say, uh, why don't you wear full pants and go? Why wear? I'm talking about 30 years back. Mm -hmm. Okay. She'll say, why, Ma? What is the problem? The problem is with the men who are staring at my legs, not at me who's wearing it. Yeah. And now that Me Too movement has become huge in India. We're wow. all fighting for this. Yeah. So giving permission, the I in you to I me, who's giving you permission? I'm not giving you permission. You're giving that permission to yourself. Yes. To look at me with a male case. Yeah. I'm not a sex object. So that's what it, it's all about. You see, I instinctively felt that, but I couldn't quite place why. You explained it beautifully for me. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, you've written this as a one-liner, monocou. Yes. Can you give us again the technical, your technical thoughts behind the way you did this, why you decided to write it in that way? Because I'm talking about a male gaze, which mm -hmm. is direct from him to me. Mm -hmm. There's no need to put it in three lines and go down. Yeah. It's a direct eye-to-eye -eye contact between him and me. Giving permission, the I in you, it's almost like I'm telling him, giving permission, the I in you to I me, it cannot be in three lines or two lines or four lines. It has yeah. to be a one-liner. Yeah. A haiku, one-line haiku, it's beautiful when it curls back. 
but this doesn't curl back. There are different ways of writing one line haiku. One is a one breath poem where you don't see the grammar, you don't see anything, you just mm. rush through the whole thing and then you come back and then you analyze it. Yeah. The other one is where it has multiple breaks. Yeah. One line has more breaks than a three line. A three line has only one break. Yeah. It's one image, it's two concrete images coming just opposed. Because a one line has multiple breaks. Yeah. My first one that got published in 2008, I think, Patricia Prime was the editor of Kikaku. She published it. Into the night, a cuckoo returns the call. I put it as a one line because I had gone to Pune University. It was night. I was returning. And then I heard a cuckoo call straight. It was a it was a it was a canopy. It was a straight road full of trees. And I heard a cuckoo call. Into the night, the, the cuckoo returns the call. And after some time, a feeble call from the end of that lane, another cuckoo calls. Into the night, the cuckoo returns the call. Till the last word, call, you don't know there is a mate waiting there. Into no. the night, a cuckoo returns. Into the night, into the night, a cuckoo. Into the night, a cuckoo returns. Into the night, a cuckoo returns the call. See the amount of breaks in that one line? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, do you know what, Carla? I started haiku probably a bit like you, thinking, how, how difficult can it be? It's only a few words. And yet, <laughs> <laughs> when you see and hear something as, as beautiful and as, as well-crafted as that, I sometimes think, oh, I'm never going to get it. But that's just wonderful and I think sadly this next one is our last one Carla oh yes that is nothing it just says what it's going to say meeting after years she believes I'm dying to know her story but I read it this way meeting after years she believes I'm dying meeting after years she believes I'm dying to know her story you know, they go non-stop. I also go non-stop when we meet somebody about, oh, yeah, I think they want to know my story. No, they want to tell their story. Always. And this just, just that's exactly how I took it. it was just and, this is, and this is the way Anita Vergel says, and you should be. There's no cut. There's nothing. It is just a prose sentence split into three lines. Mm -hmm. Meeting after years, she believes I'm dying to know her story. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming back and reading to us today. It's been, well, both sessions we've had have been an education for me and I've enjoyed them thoroughly. And, and now we have proof that you've promised to come back and do some more yes. for us next year. <laughs> yes, I will. I will. Anytime you call me, I'm there for you, Patricia. I love the way you do it. And thank you for these questions. Every question was something I wanted to answer. Oh, I'm so pleased. I wanted the Haikai world to know what is behind my poems. It's not often you get these opportunities. Yes, it's, it's true. It's true. And it's and it's something I so enjoy doing because you don't, not everybody, I'm so lucky, not everybody gets a chance to sit down with, with somebody like you who knows what they're doing and just listen to the stories and the craft behind the poetry and and I know that when people hear this, Carla, they're going to be writing back to me and saying, it was great to hear from Carla and it was great to hear what was behind the poetry and how she puts it together and, and what makes her think. And 
just wonderful. Thank you, Carla. A Himalayan sized thank you to you, Patricia, for this. <laughs> the Indian touch. Thank you.